Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. everyone to UFO Chronicles. I've got a few stories for you today. They come from the way distant past before we had proper cameras but we did have sort of cameras before we had flashes that worked without literally blowing up a whole space with light before we had aeroplanes of any sort there were a few blimps around but the most interesting thing when you look around the blogs at these early examples you've still got people going oh there were airships well the truth is that airships blimps were not that common and they tended to be flown in very specific places usually deliberately to be seen they weren't a mode of transport and of course they were more evident in Europe than anywhere else they were dangerous it was a big deal and yeah pretty much anybody that was anybody would have known what they looked like or had a good description of them the interesting thing about it is that even in the 1860s and the 1870s they did not exist either they were like a, 
uh, quite a bit later, quite a bit later, the early 1900s, I guess. And you can look that up yourself, but I don't think I'm too far off base to say that they weren't running around Texas back in the day in the 1800s, mid-1800s. Nobody was running around in Texas, right? So we have this interesting story from 1865. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle reported, and you can actually go and look these up. The newspaper reports are there. The actual uh, microfiche of the newspapers themselves. The eyewitness to this event was a James Lumley, a long-time Rocky Mountain trapper who said that while trapping in the isolated mountain ranges about a hundred miles above the Great Falls of Upper Missouri River, he witnessed a curious sight one evening just after sunset. He said he saw a bright object in the sky that broke into pieces similar to a skyrocket. Please note, skyrockets did exist. A few minutes later, he heard an explosion that jarred the earth where he was camped. This occurred a few seconds after he heard this, um, what sounded like um, a tornado sweeping through the thick woods around him. Lumley followed the path until he came to the side of the mountain that had had what appeared to be a huge stone driven through it. What Lumley had first thought was a stone turned out to be some sort of vehicle which was divided into various compartments. Lumley was shocked to find that he that what he sorry he was shocked to find what he described as some sort of hieroglyphics carved into the surface of the strange shaft as though it was by human hands. Lumley also found what appeared to be fragments of glass scattered around the remaining piece of the vehicle, which he concluded to a, which he concluded to be a small portion of the hole. Lumley also reported that there was a strange black liquid on the ground. This is where the newspaper article did speculate that the vehicle could have come from another planet in our solar system. Even in the 1860s, they were thinking about this, right? So where did that all come from? I mean, seriously, why did we, at such an early stage, a long way before the Wright brothers or anybody else was actually thinking about flying, did was there already some kind of intimation or understanding that there may be life on other planets. And I think that that's basically because it's a natural conclusion, not one that's fabricated. It's just, we live here. Look at all those stars out there. Um, the, the, their fascination or the idea that there may be others living out there is just a natural, not an unnatural conclusion outside of religion. <laughs> it's like one of those things. Um, so very interesting stuff. Um, there was no follow-up on the article and and of course when you look at this too we're not talking front page news it wasn't treated as a super major thing it was page two it's a tiny little wee column part of on a page where a lot of advertising was done um, and so it was just fitted in there it wasn't seen as sensationalist it was seen as strange and that's how they put it that the actual title was strange <laughs> a strange phenomenon and it was seen as unusual but it wasn't seen as catastrophic. It wasn't seen as something that should be denied, hidden or otherwise. It was more along the lines of, well, you might want to watch out for this stuff. How More than 100 years after the fact, a local UFO researcher um, actually suggested that it could still be there, the, the crash site, because um, nobody to anybody's knowledge had returned to the crash site. But we wouldn't know if they did unless they um, mentioned it. And if there was somebody who thought there might be money to be made by 
harvesting whatever was there I'm quite sure it would be gone but you can go along and you can have a look at the Google uh, Google Maps satellite space it's it's actually outlined and circled where it where it was where it was said to be he described it very well um, the um, understanding comes straight here that it was he saw it at the Ryan Dam uh, sorry he saw it at Great Falls of the Missouri which is now the Ryan Dam and Cadot Pass would put the crash site right in around Canyon Ferry Reservoir or perhaps even under it. It's only speculation that this is possible, but it's possible. <laughs> it's all we want. It's possible. Um, very interesting to have things crashing out of the sky. Now, we could go the other way and say there's a potential of that being a meteor or a meteorite, but meteors have always hit hit the earth and they look like balls of fire pretty much they they do look like um and something very interesting but i know from living in australia that they crash over sites for miles they leave a lot of damage over miles of flattening trees and interesting stuff so pretty pretty cool pretty interesting 1878 we've got another one this sighting was reported by local texas newspaper denison daily news on january the 25th 1878 um with the, the oh, this this is the one sorry i got mixed up there this is the one that was titled a strange phenomenon the following article is a first-hand report from the farmer um, of his ufo sighting and again you can look at this paper so these are all catalogued papers um, from mr john martin a farmer who lives some six miles south of this city we learn the following strange story tuesday morning while he was out hunting his attention was directed to a dark object high up on the southern sky the peculiar shape and velocity of which the object seemed to approach riveted his attention and his strain he strained his eyes to discover its character when first noticed it appeared to be about the size of an orange which continued to grow in size after gazing at it for some time mr martin became blind from looking and left off viewing it for time in order to rest his eyes on receiving resuming his view the object was almost overhead and had increased considerably in size and appeared to be going through space at wonderful speed when directly over him it was about the size of a large saucer and was evidently at great height mr martin thought it resembled as well he could judge a balloon it went as rapidly as it had come and was soon lost to sight in the heavenly skies mr martin is a gentleman of undoubted veracity and this strange occurrence if it was not a balloon deserves the attention of our scientists through that report you get that total reality that while we had balloons flying around and we did and still do they do not move particularly fast and so he's talking about something moving very very quickly and if he rested his eyes for a few moments and not 10 minutes the fact that it was distant and then it was above him is is a noticeable phenomenon but still there's more uh, we actually have an abduction too there was a colonel hg shaw along with his friend camille spooner had a close encounter with previously unknown entities in 1896 shaw a civil war veteran and journalist wrote of his first in experience in the evening mail on november the 27th of 1896 it's been one of the most widespread accounts of aliens and ufos 
Spooner was connected to Spooners of Spooner Summit up in Lake Tahoe, which was named after his, phoners, after his father, and the Spooners were prominent people in the community and therefore held in high regard. On the t- November the 25th, uh, the Stockton Evening Mail carried this unusual headline, Three Strange Visitors Who Possibly Came From the Planet Mars, with the addition that these mystery beings had been seen on a country road by a Colonel H.G. Shaw and a companion. The bizarre-looking individuals wearing no clothes but covered in a strange silken growth about their bodies were recalled recently by record columnist Michael Fitzgerald. Shaw was in charge of putting together an exhibition to be displayed at a citrus fair in Fresno. Shaw and Spooner were travelling by horse and carriage en route to Stockton when their horse froze with fright. To the men's shock, they saw the cause of the horse's actions. Three tall, human-like beings with small, delicate hands at the end of their spindly arms stood by the road. They had no hair on their heads, but a soft, light fuzz over their bodies. Large eyes made their small mouths Sorry, yes, large eyes made their small mouths and ears appear even smaller. The two men would later tell authorities that the beings had a strange type of beauty about them. These beings were seven feet tall and very slender with small hands and fingers without nails and feet that were twice as long as normal and functioned in a similar way to monkey's feet according to Shaw's description. You can't help but sort of think there's a similarity to that and what people now call a yeti, um, except that the differences are notable as well. All of the beings carried with them a bag of some kind with a hose, which they often stuck in their mouths, obviously to breathe with. Although there was still some daytime left, the beings also carried with them egg-shaped lamps, which glowed. The glow would later illuminate a waiting spaceship. As the men watched the aliens, the beings were communicating with each other by a type of chant, as no English words were heard by Shaw or Spooner. The men would tell authorities that the entities made an attempt to abduct them, but that the large difference in mass between human and alien body thwarted the effort. So they seem to be saying, and I read that part of the newspaper article, and they seem to be saying that while these guys were really tall, they maybe didn't have the strength to cart them off, (laughs) even though they were taller by seven feet, being a lot taller than your average human being, even a tall human being. Um, Their spindly arms, they talk about their spindly arms, so maybe they didn't have the physical strength to cart them off. After the aliens failed to carry away shore, he said they fled into the airship and disappeared. The airship was a cigar shape and it hovered quietly over the water. The entities seemed to be almost lighter than air as they moved towards the craft. It seemed that they would almost leave the ground as they walked on the earth, and then they sprung up from the ground and above their craft and then floated down into the craft through an unseen entry. Soon the object flew away. I have a theory, which of course is only a theory, that those we behold were inhabitants of Mars who have been sent to Earth for the purpose of securing one of its inhabitants, Shaw wrote. Quite fan 
fantastic. And I really love the lack of judgment um, that a person can go and explain their experience to other people without fear, without censure, and feel comfortable enough to explore what it might have been with other intelligent human beings <laughs> discussing it rather than them defending the experience. And I think we've started this uh, for a long time on the world. If you have an experience, no matter what it is, no matter what your feelings are, no matter what your thoughts are about anything, even politics, you are put in a position to defend yourself. We're a warlike people in the modern world. We are not caring or considerate of anyone of their feelings, of their experience. There seems to be, in person and online, this absolute lack of consideration for others. I'd love to see that gone, no doubt at all. There's another mass sighting in 1897. So you'll notice this is in 1865 to 1897. Now we're sort of looking at one a year that people are talking about. Um, and we start with hundreds saw a strange red light that appeared in the sky above Topeka on the evening of March the 27th, 1897. The Topeka Daily Capital reported the next day on its front page. Was it the headlight of an airship, the newspaper asked? Perhaps it was not an airship, but it was something, something startling. And that was the newspaper editor's comment. And I find that fascinating because um, we didn't have cars really and I I think the first cars had gas lights for headlamps so I think it's a really interesting observation but they did have light electricity was definitely beginning as a thing but I don't know how portable that was that sighting came four months after the San Francisco call four months earlier published a drawing of a mystery airship it reported had moved slowly over Sacramento California at a height of about a thousand feet in the months that followed, many UFO sightings were reported in California and the central United States. Inventor Thomas Edison sought to quell widespread speculation that he was behind the UFOs by issuing a statement denying responsibility. <laughs> so they were looking for someone to blame. The Daily Capital initially disregarded reports it received from nearby towns indicating an apparent airship featuring a huge headlight was floating around at night. But the Daily Capital then reported on March 28, 1897 that numerous Topekans had seen a red light in the western sky beginning about 9.30pm the previous evening. It seemed as if about a thousand people saw it about the same time and they were all kind enough to notify the Capital Office about it by telephone, the newspaper said. Witnesses included about 200 people who watched from the area of um, South and sorry, South 7th and Kansas Avenue, um, the, the newspaper reported. Some of those thought they saw the object move while others were uncertain. It, it said, well, it, they said, the newspaper said. The light went, then suddenly disappeared. The Daily Capital reported no one could guess where it had gone, but the fact that it had disappeared suddenly proved that it was not a star. The newspaper said it's... It, the article concluded, sorry, by saying the UFO was supposed to be the work of an inventor who was experimenting with it secretly. I find that amazing and I love their conclusion. So we have people that are not automatically suggesting this is from out of space, but they definitely know it's unusual. I, would, I, I, I could be mistaken and somebody who does the research can get me know, but I am pretty sure they didn't have the ability to create a red light that flies through the sky 
uh, in the late, well, it's not even that late, in 1878, in the, in the, in the 1870s, even pre-1900 and 10, 12, 13, I would be surprised if they could create a red light for the sky. Then we have the Dulles, Texas UFO crash, and this one's very controversial. An April 19, 1897 edition of Daily Morning News, oh, sorry, Dallas Morning News, um, there was written by Aurora resident Essie Hayden the, that an alleged UFO is said to have hit a windmill on the property of Judge J.S. Proctor two days earlier at around 6 a.m. resulting in its crash. And to be noted, they didn't use the words UFO, they used the words airship as a rule. They didn't have a word for aeroplane, just so as we understand that. The pilot, who was reported to be not of this world, quote, in the, in, in the article, and a Martian, quote, in the article, according to a reported army officer from nearby Fort Worth, they say that the pilot did not survive the cash, crash and was buried with Christian rites at the nearby Aurora Cemetery. A cigar-shaped UFO, metallic silver in colour, appeared suddenly in the sky above Aurora. It was moving from south to north. Unlike the balloon airships of its time, which were unlikely to be there, I'll say that again, this UFO was built of an unknown metal resembling somewhat a mix of aluminium and silver. A witness guessed that the ship weighed several tons. You know, they could have been seeing a modern aeroplane in out of time, out of place. But I'm, I'm not saying it was, I'm just saying interesting because that's what we would expect it to be built out of today. That's what we would expect it to look like today. Um, and again, you can see the original newspaper um microfiche of these. Hayden reported in the Dallas Morning News that the strange craft seemed to be having some kind of mechanical problems. It slowed down to about 10 or 12 miles per hour and began settling towards the ground. His article stated, the townspeople watched in amazement as the slow-moving airship drifted over the town square and then moved north towards the property of Judge J.S. Proctor. Next, the UFO collided with the windmill on the judge's land and went into pieces with a terrific explosion scattering debris over several acres of ground. The crash destroyed the windmill and the adjacent water tank and the judge's flower garden. Reportedly wreckage from the crash site was dumped into a nearby well located under the damaged windmill while some ended up with the alien in the grave. Notably this was this was researched some years later because of the the crash and so we get to, to have a bit of an insight into people that were there uh, who were very old at the time of being interviewed later. Hayden said that although the pilot's body was damaged severely in the crash, it was clear that he, quote, he was not an inhabitant of this world. The pilot may have been from Mars, said another witness. Mr. T.J. Weems, an officer in the U.S. Signal Service and an authority on papers written in an unknown language. The papers may have contained a record of the pilot's journeys, but they were written in some unknown hieroglyphics and could not be understood. It's to be noted they're not saying another language. They would have been aware or able to understand that there were different languages on this planet. And so to say hieroglyphics implies caricature, characters that are more like drawings because um, that's what those are and they would have understood about those by then as well. 
As word of what happened reached surrounding towns, many visitors arrived to look at the crash site, Hayden commented. The town is full of people today who are viewing the wreck and gathering specimens of the strange metal from the debris. It's possible that some of that mysterious wreckage that was carried away from Aurora still exists today, stored away and forgotten in attics or storage rooms. And it's even possible, to my mind, that they were thrown away because somebody just didn't know what they were. No trace of it has ever been found, though after the crash, the townspeople tried to find out more about how this airship was constructed and what made it fly, which tells you that they had no idea. <laughs> However, Hayden said that the ship was too badly wrecked to form any conclusion as to its construction or motive power. So they would have had some understanding of engines and motors, not necessarily cars, but the industrial age did bring industrial engines with them and of course things like trains used engines as well, um, just that they were powered by steam. So a pretty fascinating commentary. I think these details are the key to this type of report because the details phenomenal, really phenomenal. The Dallas Morning News article published two days after the crash said that the pilot's funeral would take place on April the 18th. And another newspaper, the Fort Worth Register, said the pilot who was not an inhabitant of this world was given proper Christian burial at the Aurora Cemetery. And when the pilot was buried, a marker was placed on his grave. In 1973, newspaper reporter Bill Case described the marker as having a strange design on it resembling a flying saucer with portholes. Shortly after Case wrote a story describing the grave marker, um, somebody stole it. <laughs> it's like, that's the world we live in. Okay, so we've written this story, now it's publicised, I'm going to steal that. Today, nobody is sure exactly where the pilot was buried. Adding to the mystery was the story of Mr. Brawley Oates, who purchased Judge Proctor's property around 1945, and Oates cleaned out the debris from the well in order to use it as a water source, but later developed an extremely severe case of arthritis, which he claimed to be the result of contaminated water from the wreckage dumped in the well as a result. Oates sealed up the well with a concrete slab and placed an outbuilding atop the slab. According to the writing on the slab, this was done in 1957. Uh, in, in 1998, the TV show UFO Files investigated with the Dallas-based TV station and aired a lengthy report about the Aurora incident. Reporter Richard Ray interviewed former Fort Worth Star Telegram reporter and other locals who said something crashed in Aurora. However, Ray's report was unable, unable to find conclusive evidence of terrestrial life or technology. I think that we would need to at that point say yes but it was pre-1900 and it was flying um, and if you've got newspaper reports of a pilot then it becomes a question of um, yeah how do you build a plane and fly it in the late 1800s 1878 to be precise and have nobody ever know anything about that. There would be the engineers, there would be the builders, the whole lot. They wouldn't be sneaking around and hiding it. Um, so I think that that's phenomenal all by itself. Um, the other thing there was in that interview, a woman stepped up and said that there was never a, um, never a windmill on the property. And later on it was proved there actually was. And she was alive when it happened. And so she was also very adamant that there could not have been 
a non-human and it could not have happened that way. So she had grown through her belief in denying aspects of the story that were absolutely true to build her narrative, I guess. In 2005, Bill Case, again an aviation writer for the Dallas Times-Herald and the Texas State Director of Mutual UFO Network, MUFON, uncovered two new eyewitnesses to the crash. Mary Evans, who was 15 at the time, told of how her parents went to the crash site. They forbade her from going and the discovery of the alien body. Charlie Stephens, who was age 10 at the time, told how he saw the airship trailing smoke as it headed north towards Aurora. He wanted to see what happened, but his father made him finish his chores. Later, he told how his father went to town the next day and saw the wreckage of the crash. Mufon then investigated the Aurora Cemetery and uncovered a grave marker that appeared to show a flying saucer of some sort, along with positive readings from their metal detector. Mufon asked for permission to exhume the site, but the Cemetery Association declined permission. After the investigation, the marker mysteriously disappeared from the cemetery and a three-inch pipe was placed into the ground. Their metal detector no longer picked up metal readings from the grave and so it was presumed that the metal had been removed. In 2008, Tim Oates, nephew of Brawley Oates and now owner of the property with, with the sealed well and where the UFO wreckage was purportedly buried, allowed the investigators to unseal the well in order to examine it for possible debris. Water was taken from the well which tested normal except for large amounts of aluminium present. The well had no significant contents. It was stated that any large pieces of metal had been removed from the well by the past owner which we mentioned. Further to that, the remains of the Wilmore base were found near the well site which proved the previous lie. In addition, the Aurora Cemetery was again examined, although the Cemetery Association still did not permit exhumation using ground penetrating radar and photographs from photos from prior visits an unmarked grave was found in the area near the 1890s graves however the condition of the grave was badly deteriorated and the radar could not conclusively prove what type of remains existence existed so that's our show for today um moving forward and through these early sightings fascinates me and i think it's a great place for us to start um around the world and we will move out and branch around the world but i just thought this was a good place to start um again we're in that zone of can we really just dismiss people's experiences can we just say that they're nutters even though at the time they they are reported to be very commonsensical people but if you were crazy and say you were schizo you know (laughs) in the 1800s would it be a flying saucer that you saw you know is that where you would go with it something that you've never heard of before so it doesn't make a lot of sense there is a question about the aurora incident as to why someone would move the the um metal that was placed that was in a grave because the interesting part is that as it was already there in the early stages we didn't have metal detectors so there would have been no benefit to put it there as a hoax right and then there's no benefit to remove it once we do have um, 
once we do have metal detectives. So there's a little question around that mystery for me as to why anyone would put metal in there in the first place and then why would they remove it and what would they do with it if they if they did remove it? What what was the point? What's the whole point? And of course while people say things like that, I have an answer. It's maybe not right, but it's certainly worth a thought. These are the type of things that can be worth a lot of money. Now, they may not go out for public auction, but like we have people that buy illegal art, we have people that buy illegal anything. We have people that buy illegal artifacts that are taken out of the ground that could um, progress humanity's understanding of ourselves. And we have people who deal in that illegally and buy and sell billions, and I don't mean millions, I mean billions of dollars of worth of artifacts to keep in their private collections, not caring about the rest of the world, only caring that they own it, not doing it to protect those artworks, not doing it to protect those artifacts, but doing that for themselves. But there's also another possibility in there. If there are aliens that are living on our planet, that are existing, then the very fact that we find something and report it and talk about it, there could be that they have that interest in removing it themselves. Just a thought, everyone. UFO Chronicles next week, we're going to be talking about the extraordinary flight of JAL-1628, uh, which is Alaska's best-known UFO encounter. Look forward to talking to you then. Ciao for now.